I created the Event Horizon to reach the stars, but she's gone much, much farther than that. She tore a hole in our universe, a gateway to another dimension. A dimension of pure chaos, pure evil. Must be the same dimension where a lot of directors who adapt the works of H.P. Lovecraft live. Allow the cast of Cthulhu to be your guide to the world of cinematic H.P. Lovecraft adaptations from the superb to the truly cosmically horrific. I'm Jim Rohner. And I'm James McCormick. And today we'll be reviewing 1997's Event Horizon, written by Philip Eisner and directed by the other Paul Anderson, Paul W.S. Anderson. And um, of course, as as I uh, as we've prefaced, joining us to discuss is writer, director, stuntman, and um, recent attendee or screener um, at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival with his short uh, Echoes in the Ice, B.J. Vero. B.J., thank you for joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Glad to be back. So, of course, uh, this was supposed to be a three-way conversation when I interviewed BJ, but mm -hmm. uh, James got called into work. James is actually, as of this recording, on vacation and potentially getting sick. So, James, uh, way to start your way to kickstart your vacation. What what a Lovecraftian start to my <laughs> vacation! Just dourness. Of me, you know? <laughs> um. So, Event Horizon. This was. I, I, we BJ and I touched on this a little bit. I can't remember if it was on mic or off mic, but um, this was one that we'd been building up to for a little bit, one that was always kind of on the list, um, and one that, um, well, as I've told James and I think I said on the podcast, when I first saw it, hated it. Um, I, I remember people telling me, like, complaining about Paul W.S. Anderson and people being like, listen... Watch Event Horizon, you'll see he's a talented director. So I, I did my due diligence, I saw it, and I hated it. Still thought he was a bad director. Revisited for this podcast. Didn't hate it as much. Um, but I still think I might be a little bit in the minority in the sense of... Um, uh, I think James and, and, and BJ like it a bit more than I do. But I guess... Um, I'll kick it off to uh to well I guess to our to our guest the 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 director the filmmaker Event Horizon your first exposure to it your thoughts on it what what was your experience like seeing Event Horizon for the first time Uh yeah there was a lot going on I think when I when I first saw Event Horizon um I was like a teenager so I think I was at a very a very good and impressionable age <laughs> to uh to have checked this film out and uh uh Paul Anderson was just coming out of having done Mortal Kombat which <laughs> I thought was awesome. So like that's a pretty solid follow-up and, and really different too. Right. And, uh, so, um, I, I came out of it. I, I loved it when I, when I first saw it. And interestingly, like on my rewatch, I still like it, but I don't think it's as good as I, as I built it up in my head. I mean, I don't know. It's not a perfect film, but I still really do enjoy it quite a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm like with BJ, like when Mortal Kombat came out, even though it wasn't the R rated, you know, slugfest that i wanted i still enjoy, even to this day i still enjoyed the mortal kombat film <laughs> event horizon again i i loved it when it came out because i'm like oh this is super gory this is like space like it reminded me of course at the time like i think i was probably around 17 when it came out I'm like oh this is like alien if you mixed it with you know like this like like hellraiser that like that was always in my head like it was like oh it's it's alien but hellraiser and it also to me cemented Sam Neill as his crazy Sam Neill. Like, <laughs> like after, of course, everyone's seeing him in Jurassic Park, but like me, I was the nerdy kid who knew him from like The Omen 3 and knew him from like Possession and knew him, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and he has this weird tr 
to me, his the unofficial Lovecraftian trilogy of Possession, In the Mouth of Madness, and Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. And it's weird that he's always crazy Sam Neill in them. You know, it's like, <laughs> I love it. So, and, and re-watching it, and I actually re-watched it with the commentary um, with Paul, at the time, Paul Anderson, yeah. before he put the yeah, little... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, put the letters in, and, um, <laughs> and one of the producers, and I still dig it. it yeah, like... Like we said, it's not a it's it's definitely not a perfect film, but I think it has enough fun, you know, and, and there's a lot of cliches in it, of course, but there's something there. And like I understand why people say this is like, oh, Paul W is you know, oh you you hate him for doing like, you know, the Resident Evil movies and <laughs> Ultraviolet or whatever else he's or whatever else he's done, you know. And I I always think every meal you know, Jovovich film is is his film now. But <laughs> right. um but I but I, I still think this is a, a well made film and I really think it has a lot to do with the people he had behind the scenes, especially like the set designers and all that stuff. So I still dig it, you know. I don't love it as much, but I dig it, you know. Yeah, I think you touched on a good point, too. Like, this movie really does I, – I honestly, I feel like the production design in this film is amazing. Like, you just got those nice metal rungs, those, those like, metal gridded floors. Every room in this place looks like it had a lot of love given to it. And uh, that was something that really stood out to me as well. And uh, actually – Sorry, if, if we jump back to the previous podcast when you asked, what was my first, the first Lovecraft story I read? This is probably maybe one of the first like Lovecraftian films that mm. I encountered. Um, however, at the time, I wasn't aware of that. Um, I don't think quite as, you know, quite as much as, as now. But yeah, just like that whole idea of just a ship going through a black hole and disappearing for seven years and coming back. And it's like, what is this thing seen? Is such a fun way to start a film. Like, what a good premise that is. So I was I was hooked pretty early from that one, uh, you know, from that pitch. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's funny because I, I as I was watching this movie, I kept thinking, I think I even made the joke to James while I was watching it. Like, um, I like this movie better when they made it the second time and called it Sunshine. Um, yeah. But because but it, but it, it does have that thing of like, you know, this this lost mission out in space and they send a ship to get it. And there's elements of it, it that in both Sunshine and even in Ad Astra from last year. And then I kind of had to step back and think like, but those films came much later than this one. This one was not the original, but it, it certainly had that idea of like, up oh, a lost crew. We're sending out another rescue mission and weird shit's going to happen. Um, but I, I, it's funny because I, I agree with both of you and what you're saying and that the production design is, it's, it's pretty stellar. It's, it's one of the, the best parts of this movie, but then also, my reaction to that too is like, well, clearly they watched Alien and liked it a lot. So even the things it does really well, it's like, ah, oh, but a, a, another better film did this before these guys did. Yeah, that's fair. Um, though, you know, I, I the way I kind of look at that is, is, um, you know, cl- clearly, uh, you know, that their the preceding film, you know, left left an impression on these guys, and uh, so. You know that they the fact that they they take the inspiration from this previous film and they you know they crafted this this project in Event Horizon, um, you know it does kind of walk new territory. Like, um, yeah, I mean obviously the uh, the aesthetic is very similar. Like you can see in the alien design, even even if you jump way forward to Pandorum, also done by Paul Anderson, like where it's <laughs> like that guy wakes up from a cryogenic chamber, like you're just on another sleepy ship where where shit's going down. But I mean. Um, you know, clearly he likes to, to live in that world. And I, I almost think at this point, 
you know, if, if you kind of like start to pick out all these films that have been done kind of that exist in that realm, it's almost like its own subgenre at this point, you know, people want to drift on a ship, you know, and, and I kind of like that about it. Yeah. Agreed. Like, um, with, with me, I, I love a good in, you know, horror movie in space that, you know, people have no, no way of escaping. And it's, it's that, you know, sat, you know, you, you're just like, how are these people going to get away, you know, get away. And, Nine times out of ten, they don't, and I kind of like that dourness of it all. Like, it, it reminds me of another film from the '90s. Um, I don't know if you guys ever seen it, Dark Side of the Moon. It's a very I, I don't know if I have. I've seen it, Transformers, Dark Side of the or Dark of the Moon, whatever that was. Dark, dark. Yeah, see, that's Dark sorry, of the Moon. No, sorry. Dark Side of the Moon is a very interesting. It's kind of like in the same vein where these got you know this crew was just stuck, and like they realized that the Bermuda Triangle is also on the moon. It's like a passageway, mm. basically, possibly through hell. And it, it's a film that we, I, I, it's one we might, like I might want to cover at some point, even though it's a little more of the religious side of things. Like it, th this being that's on the ship killing people might be Satan. Okay. And it's the whole concept of like him, like corrupting every single crew member in his own way. And it's like that, like. But I, I always love that. I, I love alien knockoff films. Like, I, <laughs> like I have a, such a, a love for those. Like any of the Roger Corman ones, like Galaxy of Terror, you know, or freaking <laughs> Forbidden World, where it's just an excuse just to kill everybody off. And <laughs> it feels like you know Paul W S Anderson like really loves those types of films, and just like even from his commentary track, he talks about the production design how they filmed it all in Pinewood Studios in England and they were trying to get a company to make these sets because they were very complex they wanted like like to they wanted to make it look lived in they didn't want it to look fresh and like clean they wanted it to look dirty you could see like the filth yeah. on the you know everything and i and i love that and like they said last minute this one guy came forward because everyone said no we we have no time it was like 2 weeks to get it done and this guy said, well, I'll try with my crew. We'll, we'll see what we do. And he's like, and Anderson says, like, and luckily he did it. Like, you know, he was, he, and like, and that's the beginning of the commentary track. He's just like, they're both in awe of all the cool little things. And I, I, I love that about the film like that. It just feels lived in. It feels like this crew. And, and also what's really weird about it is, and watching it again, seeing Lawrence Fishburne as the captain. And I'm like, this is a couple of years before The Matrix, where he's also a captain of a ship that's like fighting against something <laughs> weird, you know? And it's like weird. It's like, is it because of this film that it got cast in The Matrix? Like, did the did, did Wachowskis watch this and go, hey, you know, we should get him for Neo, you know? It's like a weird little thing. Like, if it wasn't for that, even though it didn't do well in the box office, mm -hmm. it's become one of those films that has a cult audience. And I think that's why, because it feels there's a lot of care in it. Like, even if you don't think like Anderson's a great director, I think he got everybody like a really good crew of actors, really, you know, the, the effects, the, the, the backgrounds, like, like even the music, except for that intro, like weird doctor who thing that happens in the beginning. It's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it's very jarring. But like after that, it's like, okay, I'm in for this ride, you know?
Yeah, I feel like that lived-in look, I, I, I've always called it like the space trucker look where it's just like lived-in and it's dirty. And um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this movie called Leviathan. It's like that uh, underwater film with Peter Weller. James it's got that flavor that just looks like, I don't know why you're just filling your air scrubbers with cigarette smoke, but you're doing it anyways. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's awesome. I love it. That's like, that's my, oh, that's my favorite space aesthetic, I guess, is just that, just that grimy, oily chains and metal kind of look. And just, it's perfect. I so. I love that you mentioned Leviathan because uh, th this is one of the things I appreciate about James is how he's seen basically everything. So there was one day we were talking and he was talking about like, oh, we should probably watch Leviathan or we should probably do Leviathan on this podcast at some point. And I was like, you know, speaking of Leviathan, I remember seeing this movie when I was a kid and it had this, this, and this. And he was like, yeah, that's Leviathan. That's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I, I misremembered. I'm like, I think it's got Roy Scheider. And he's like, no, I think you're thinking of Peter Weller. Uh yeah. So that we'll we'll get to that at some point. But even even this this blue collar space trucker look, which I, I, I love that that idea, even that like once again, that was an alien too. like this idea of this blue collar casual kind of crew. And there's even even the the opening scene in or one of the opening scenes in this when they're all kind of sitting around in the common area whatever it is like it has that that same feel of alien of just like you know the they're shooting the shit these people have been on the spaceship for who knows how long they kind of have a, a casual um you know way of speaking with each other and they just know the little ticks about each other and the weird little perversions even the thing of like one of the one of the crew members bunk has like a, a bunch of pictures of women like magazine cutouts like kind of up on it's like okay yeah you've seen alien I get it, Paul W. Sanderson. I get it. And so, but I guess the one thing is if you're going to rip off from anyone, like you, you rip off from the best, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? It's funny because like the way I look at that scene is, is uh, like, you know, that, that like went after my own heart. Like I saw that. I'm like, oh, everyone's in their underwear and they're having smokes and they're talking shit to each other. All right. Who are these people? And let's find out what they're all about. You know what I mean? Like mm. this is like. This is like the prologue, and you're like, all right, let's see who I like before they start getting popped off here. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very fun, like, I feel like it's almost more like a bit of a trope. So, I mean, you're not wrong. Like, it's kind of following a formula, but it's one that, that personally, I just, I just, I tend to enjoy. It's, it's a very fun and quick and dirty way to have people talking, you know, it's like a six-way conversation across a table. And that's uh, just, it's kind of fun. And then also you have the introduction of Dr. Weir, who's, uh, he's mm -hmm. totally an outlier. He can't even get in a word edgewise <laughs> and everyone's just shutting him down and zapping him with needles and stuff. And I mean, so, you know, that dynamic is set so early. It's, it's very, very interesting. James already mentioned it, Sam Neill, love Sam Neill. And, and just to even think of like between, you know, 93 when he had both Jurassic Park and the piano come out and then you have like In the Mouth of Madness and then Event Horizon, just like, yeah, Sam Neill can do... I'm pretty sure Sam Neill can do basically anything. Um, and if yeah. side note, if, if people haven't seen Hunt for the Wilder People, please see Hunt for the Wilder People. Um, yeah. I think that's something that sets this film apart too. Yes, it's it uh, maybe does follow a bit of a formula, but the cast for this film is so good. Um, I find that it just elevates all of this stuff that, that might come off as like a little bit, um, you know, retreaded. You know, because you, you have people like Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne and even like Sean Pertwee as just like the curmudgeonly yes. like pilot. Like there's just so many there's so many good characters in this. And, he, and even the ones that like aren't as well known, like I just feel like that it was a very strong cast all, all like through and through. There was no there was no weak link on this one. I would I would agree with that. It is funny because I've 
since I've seen this, obviously it's been a long, long time. Like, oh, Jason Isaac's in this movie too. Like, I had right. no idea that Jason Isaacson's and and Richard T. Jones. Like, I oh, he's so good. He, we we'll we'll put a pin in this. I do I do want to get to that. You know I think we are gonna have to dig into some stuff because I got something to say about that too. But I'll let you. <laughs> um, I'll but let you drag him through the mud first. <laughs> not not even not even him. He. He, I think he does the best he he can with the material he's given. I just think it's it's a weird like this is a gravely serious movie, and you have this kind of comedic side character inside it where he's like outside the spaceship, kind of like what the fuck's going on, man? Come on, let me in. It's like this this belongs in a different movie. I agree tonally. There's there's a bit of a yeah. shift in that like third act where it gets like a little bit too pulpy, mm. and um, I think if they just grounded it a little more, he would have been fucking amazing like because he he kind of you know early on he's really cocky and he's like i'm the lifesaver i'm your best friend and then it turns out like this guy can bring it like when yeah. <laughs> when it goes down he is so good but because he's such a car like a cartoon character by the end yeah um i totally get what you're saying like if they had just kind of stabilized him a little bit man you you would you would have literally had like a superman on that ship you know well yes yeah. and, and because it's sorry i didn't i didn't i didn't mean to interrupt you bj but i i, oh, no. I did um because it once again it's sort of like you 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 saw the Yafet Kodo character in Alien, but you kind of learned the lo- wrong lessons from what made him work. Like, yes, he was kind of comedic, but also it was it was kind of measured, and and it was within this this familiarity with each other. Where like, yeah, then Paul W. S. Anderson's like, no, th- this is gonna be hilarious. Like, we need some comic relief in this movie. Like, do do we? Yeah. Know? Uh, you're right. I mean, Yafet Kodo is real. That guy is scared out of his mind, but mm-hmm. he's still gonna step up when when he has to, and I love that. Um, but I I guess let's uh. I've got I've got a few complaints about this movie. All of us have you know kind of thoughts on how it's not perfect, but let's let's first kind of dig into what we really think makes this movie work. And I will I'll I'll start out because I will probably be the most critical one a little bit later on. But that just that setup as we already kind of talked about, but that idea of a, a ship which has disappeared under mysterious circumstances. We've got a signal. We're going out to find them, but no one really has any idea what they're getting into. It's kind of like it's a very tense moment and like and the even getting there and trying to slow that slow discovery of like what happened here we've got kind of a broken transmission i'll see what i can do and one by one people kind of start having these weird these weird visions the groundwork is laid out for something which is going to be really tense and really solid i think the third act falls apart quite a bit but we'll get to that but there is this movie like watching it like i I can't say I was on the edge of my seat because I mostly knew it was happening, but I was like, wow, okay, the this the first act is really, really solid. Like it really sets you up and like, okay, yeah, what what do you what do you got going on for me, movie? And as you said, that with the the cast that the that the movie has assembled, it's like you're right, there's no weak links. That all the right pieces are there. Um so so this is like it was a really great setup of a film, and I was actually kind of surprised by how like, oh man, how come I was so so hard in this movie when I first saw it. Right. And uh, I would tend to agree with you. Um, I think the setup is really good. Uh, the second act, you know, um, as everybody kind of starts to separate on the ship and it starts to prey upon their own kind of internal fears and, and, and situations that they're dealing with. Um, I thought that was good. And I tend to agree. I feel like by the time you get to the third act, um, you know, all the cards are on the table and mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you need to get to the, to the end point. Right. And, um, uh, I just feel like um, at that point, you kind of have an idea of, of what's going to happen. Well, at least, you know, I mean, 
again, I, I probably uh, when I first saw it, I didn't. But but going back to it, I was like, you know, now that I'm giving it a rewatch, you know, Lawrence is going to step up and save the crew. I just didn't. For me, the big question would be like, will there be any other survivors? And ultimately, there was. So an oddly happy ending for those two. But uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, here's here's something that I really liked about this film. Um, ha- did you guys happen to catch that show, The Mist, the TV show? Didn't watch the show version. Yeah. I, I I wasn't a huge fan of it, but one thing that they changed was in the in the films and in the story. Obviously, it's just like this rift, and there's all kinds of stuff coming out of it, and uh, you know, it's just it's just a mixed bag of whatever you might encounter. Whereas on the show, they kind of did this thing where it was like whatever whatever kind of like surrounded the characters again intrinsically would be what they'd be kind of dealing with with the within the mist. Oh. And I actually didn't really care for it. Whereas I feel like it works really well in Event Horizon. It preys upon you know their fears and insecurities and and it's a really nice touch because you're getting this glimpse into the mind of all these different characters um so i feel like the mist kind of like pulled from that but they just didn't kind of execute quite as well but that that second act is really fun because you just get so many different characters and all these little cat and mouse moments with the ship starting to like you know pick at their minds and it's 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 really fun yeah i agree like i like that i like the nightmare imagery like we we first when we first you know Sam Neill, you know, you know, the Dr. Weir wakes up from this nightmare of him twisting around. It's a, it's him seeing himself in the future and what has already touched him, like, you know, on a, I guess you could even say a cellular level. Like, this this thing that, this breach that he opened, it's corrupted him even before he gets back to it. Like, that seven years ago, mm. when he created this thing, it's been lingering inside of him. And... It's why he, like, it. it's almost like, and that's why I kind of, like, like how the setup, it's like, he's on this ship ready to go, and it's like, he's the only, like, everyone's like, oh, this is bullshit, there's no way the Event Horizon is found, and he's like, no, it is, I'm the one that created this thing, I know, but it's weird, because, like, we don't see any other information about that, like, it's almost like, like, I almost kind of like to feel like he somehow broke through like through the with the government and like basically because he needs to get back to the ship to like complete the portal mm. and that's like really demented like when because at first you you know like when i first saw it i thought to myself oh okay sam neil he's trying to do the, the the right thing like to find his ship and like kind of close that chapter that failure in his life but and we see like you know his his wife you know who you know commit suicide and like this this imagery of her just keeps popping back into his nightmares but i think i think looking at it now at at an older age i think he you know from i think from the very start even with the nightmares he's having he's just straight up the villain that's actually bringing these these new souls to be corrupted and ultimately taken to that other side and Watching it like that makes me made me actually like the film like more in a different way than I did like on a on a spiritual level as opposed to a you know visceral level that I liked it you know early on like oh yeah kill 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 you know at a young age you like to see you know horror films you want to see the violence but like though they're good I want to see a little bit more than that sometimes and like that that part of it like and and Neil just he's so good because he's so subtle but then. What I love about him is that he has these great moments of just like fear and horror that 
it almost makes me laugh because it's so good. Like when he's just like, ah, and like <laughs> and the thing is, that's how I would react. Like, what the hell am I seeing here? I'm seeing my wife with her, you know, like naked in front of me, but like no eyes, just like this. I don't even know what the hell is in there. And that's scary. You know, that's horrifying, you know? Yeah. I, I, I really like that, James. Um, Jim, before before you jump in on this, I, I have to ask you a question then, because James kind of just told me what he thinks about Dr. Weir. <laughs> and it's funny, because I had, I was going to ask both of you this question, and I, I think because I think that's one of the most compelling parts of this film, whereas you think he was the villain from the get-go, just bringing more meat for the grinder. <laughs> I I feel like, you know, he's he's a really interesting and misleading villain, because they build him up as this empathetic character to start. You're you're literally introduced to him where they're like, oh man, he like was so invested in his work that his wife killed herself, but he just can't seem to get his his like mind off of this this uh, gravity drive. So I was gonna ask you guys. So um, like do you, yeah, do you think he was inherently evil coming in, or do you think that uh, you know he was he was coming in like with a purpose, but then the ship kind of used him as the most malleable tool because of his history with the ship. Because I kind of feel like it's that way. Like once they all landed, it goes, okay, this this here's my access point. This is the guy I'm gonna get into to blow up the ship for their getaway. He's the guy that I'm gonna have, you know, he's gonna be my meat puppet that I'll walk around in. So, um, and I, I think it's really interesting because for me at first glance, I was watching this and I go, okay, point blank, if I was just watching this for the first time, like who's the villain? And I wouldn't have been able to guess it until you know, he starts shifting. And it's interesting too, because even, even with his just kind of like somewhat passive reactions to, you know, some of the bigger personalities on the ship, he doesn't really get a chance to talk. Mm. But when he finally does, I almost feel like it's like a high EQ, a high IQ, low EQ situation where he's kind of talking down to them and he's just pissing them off anyway. Yeah. So, you know, so when he does finally get a chance to speak up, he, his smarminess almost just kind of knocks him down a peg very subtly as the viewer you're like ah oh, man you know he could have he could have been one of the boys here and he just like he's just talking shit so <laughs> yeah. but, but anyways uh, yeah so jim um, i don't know what, what's your take on that yeah i i mean it is interesting because I, I i mean one of the one of the first times once they get on the event horizon that they're all together is when when richard t jones there or cooper as his character is is describing what he said that he saw in that chamber and Sam Neill's like, no, that's impossible. You couldn't have seen that. And like, he's so inflexible and you just kind of see that divide between him and the crew kind of start. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I, I do think the ship is kind of recognizing like the, the latter choice in the, 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 the two choices that you laid out that it was sort of like he, he came here with, um, if not the best intentions and certainly without, uh, any nefarious aspirations and the, the ship started feeding off and recognized like, this is the one that I'm going, that I'm going to latch onto. Um, and, but which is, which is interesting because certainly our entryway into this story as, as we think would be that the audience surrogate is him because he's the one, he's the first one that we see. And with yeah. the flashbacks they are like, Oh, okay. So this guy has a backstory is at a low point. So it's going to allow him to go through an arc and then Instead of an arc, he just goes through a de-evolution instead. Um, yeah. So that, that that that's kind of where where I land on it. Yeah, it's funny. Like, um, you know, I'm sure you've seen The Hills Have Eyes, and oh, sure. you know, where you have this like, you know, this little 
you know, kind of quiet, meek character who just becomes, you know, someone who steps up and, you know, fights his way through. Whereas Dr. Weir is just the opposite. He's kind of like a bit, a bit meek and, you know, he's, he's, he's hurting. And then he just basically does feed all the meat into the, uh, into the sausage maker. So, <laughs> but it's funny cause you're right. They, they start with him and you're like, oh shit, like his wife killed himself and he was, he invested so much of himself in his work. And now he's going back to, back to this ship that basically cost him everything. And then it cost everybody else everything too. So it was really interesting, you know, in, in how that worked out. Well, and it's funny because you you mentioned this was one of the first Lovecraftian things that you saw, and um, it was I can't remember what I what I was listening to somewhat recently, but uh, it was some type of podcast where it was introducing this idea that I that was always there that I never was really aware of that even in Lovecraft story a lot of his protagonists are basically thinly veiled equivalencies for him. Um, mm-hmm. in, in the sense of their uh, white academic types that, you know, kind of don't really get out into the, the world very much. And they're very much driven by sort of a um, or, or, or their worldview is shaped by more of a, a scientific kind of objective thing until they're exposed to something which like makes their brain basically break. And when you think of it in, in those uh, confines or not confines, but uh, those characteristics Dr. Weir is kind of a Lovecraftian stand-in or, or, or a Lovecraft stand-in, I guess, because he's an academic type. He's like the scientist that created this ship. Um, you can tell based on his interaction with the crew, he probably doesn't get out a whole lot, doesn't really interact with people. We're not going to say he's xenophobic, but certainly he's sort of like he, <laughs> he he's in his own world kind of a thing. Right. And then as a, as a character also then eventually becomes exposed to this thing, which is outside of the reality that he is used to. And, you know, in, in Lovecraft, the characters, their response is like, well, I'm either going to go insane or I'm going to commit suicide. And it seems like Dr. Weird chooses like wholeheartedly in the insanity route, just fully diving into that embracing insanity with a wrapping himself in it. Like a, like, well, maybe like barbed wire, you might say. (laughs) (laughs) I, I actually think that's a, I think that's a great comparison. Um, yeah, because because often again you're, you're you're they're so motivated by like scientific and science and reason that uh, you know it's it's weird because even even though like again like I was saying these characters can be somewhat meek even like even in some of like Lovecraft stories it's often like you know there's like you know sometimes there's even like a partnership of two men and it's told from like the buddy who's like not even like the head guy he's like along for the ride mm-hmm. but once the shit hits the fan it's because they're so focused on finding the answers that they just can't stop and that's very very much like dr weir mm-hmm. and, yeah. and i think that's yeah i think you nailed it there yeah, that's, there's certainly that 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 drive for, and even i mean even that when he tells cooper like that can't be that's impossible um just the the sheer rejection of anything which it which he is which is outside of him and then um, eventually we, we learn, we learn it's the truth, but, um, yeah, I, I, I was struck by that watching it again. Like, oh yeah, this dude is, this dude is basically HP Lovecraft. Um, but I, I did want to get back to a point James made earlier cause he mentioned Hellraiser and found it funny that, um, in the IMDb trivia, it says that the, the kind of the gateway, the portal thing was, I guess, originally created to kind of be like a perfectly smooth, like spherical shape and now it turns out like and i guess paul ws anderson changed it because of inspiration from actually hellraiser and it's like well yeah this uh specifically the puzzle box in hellraiser is like yeah this uh this it's just got spikes and angles and like it, it that whole room is just like 
I don't want to be yeah. here. This is uncomfortable. Just a bunch of non-Euclidean geometry going on in there. <laughs> just breaking your mind. Um, actually, I, I think, again, the production design in that room is is really cool. Like, they get up really close to that thing. And, um, like, it's, it's quite ornate, you know? Um, so if, like James was saying, if these guys came in so late in the game in terms of, like, the design elements and, like, that's what they were able to cook up, like, hats off to those guys because that was sweet. Seriously, yeah. And I got to give Paul W.S. Anderson a little bit of credit. I'll be honest and say most of the jump scares, the things that are really kind of put there with like, ah, we're going to start it, like didn't work very well for me. I, I like I I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of direction, certainly because I haven't directed anything. But it seems like some of the scare scenes were not like put together in a way which like kind of effectively built tension. But I do have to say the sequence in which Sam Neill is crawling through like, you know, the, the back of the computer and it's like, it's the green wall and like the lights are flashing off, like really got me. I was kind of like really on edge while that was happening. And of course, when you, whenever you throw in the, uh, is it the zoom in and dolly out or the dolly in zoom out effect? Um, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. But whatever that is. Yeah, like, yeah. You dolly in and you, and you pull focus that the whole background. Distorts. Yeah. yeah exactly. um, that was, that was really, really cool. And just like, that was like, okay, I, I got to give the guy has a, a modicum of talent, I suppose. You know, I feel like he, his sweet spot was 1995 to 2002. He did like Mortal Kombat, uh, Event Horizon, Popped Off Soldier, Resident Evil. Like, man, this guy was firing like on all cylinders. And then now it's like I, I have trouble getting through his movies. But uh, I, I don't know. Like maybe maybe he's also just kind of found that like Adam Sandler sweet spot where he's like, hey, I got the same crew. We do the same ideas. We get the same amount of money and like, <laughs> fuck it, let's go. You know, I don't know. But like those are all movies that I actually enjoy. So he had a seven year span where he was just like cranking these things out and they were they were pretty fun. So and I think this is one of his more inspired uh, films for sure. I mean, high school me certainly loved that first Resident Evil. Um, and then I think I, I, I think I called it quits after, um, let me see. Cause what, cause then, uh, yeah, because then in 2002 we have, uh, Resident Evil and then there's a precipitous downfall cause 2004 is Alien versus Predator. Oh um, yeah, that's, that was my hard cutoff. Too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. But, uh, okay. You know what? You, you made an interesting point about the jump scares. I agree. I don't think that there's a lot of like your traditional, like, oh, I'm scared. And as they come around a the corner, there's like, you know, something to make you jump. I, I, I kind of feel like they almost did a thing that's like an inverted jump scare where like, okay, for example, um, you know, the girl that's working in medical, uh, uh, oh. Dr. Peters, the med tech girl, who's <laughs> got like this son. It's weird because like they would do these things. And if you reflect, you'll, you'll kind of notice these other spots where they do it too, where they actually build tension and she sees like the hand sweeping across the tent. And then when she reveals it, it's basically, they, they like stick you in this moment where you're stuck you know, unable to turn away at her son's like maggoty infected legs. And she's like reacting to it. And then the jump scare is actually, um, uh, the other, the other gentleman, ah, what's his name? Uh, DJ, DJ, the other, the other guy working in medical where he actually grabs her shoulder and breaks her out of the moment. So it's like, hmm. you get stuck in these moments of, of, uh, of terror. And then it's actually like a more human or organic moment that breaks you out. Very similar to, uh, even in the, in, even in the green tunnel there, you know, where he's he's screaming and then he sees that thing and then everything just turns back to normal and he's back in what we would call i guess our real world situations mm. so, um yeah i don't know i, I found that kind of interesting where they like they like they're like got your hands on your back and they're they're pushing you into these into these scenes and then it's like 
you actually get that release and the jump almost when the pressure's let off, interestingly. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll reconsider a little bit. Maybe maybe you two might talk me into being more of a fan of Event Horizon than I was, <laughs> but I don't I don't want to promise anything. Um but you I mean that's a good segue into you mentioned the the child in like his maggoty legs. And so that gets into this topic I want to discuss of like the gore effects, but of course really the the you know the gore effects is an excuse to talk about probably the best sequence of this entire film which is once they actually kind of decode or descramble that uh that last telecommunication oh, of the crew for it's like oh god this is like a really really kind of like i mean almost didn't expect it to be in this movie when i first saw it. like wow this seems like this is from an entirely different movie because of how really visceral and effective and just like what does this say about us? I guess, but like, I want, I want to see more. Show, show me more of that, please. Oh, yeah, yeah, good stuff. I, I always love that. Like when they finally do descramble it, it's basically there's like two big elements, primary elements. There's like, there's like a huge gore, like cannibal feast kind of situation, and then it also looks like they're all having sex with each other. Yeah. Too. So <laughs> yeah. it's just like <laughs> just an orgy of cannibalism. Yeah, uh, no. Like I said, I, I loved just that one shot of just a wrist <laughs> jamming into being a jammed down a guy's throat. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, it reminds me of like um, the movie Society, where um, oh, the man. shunt thing, where everyone's just coming into each other and like you know like morphing and like just eating and fucking and just what like like what the hell is going on and not even that it's just yeah you, you know i like people holding eyes and like just like you know and it's like how the hell but it's like it again it kind of reminds me of the whole hellraiser thing like pain and pleasure is all you know coming to a head and like they're they're these people are so beyond human anymore it's that's oh. it's the only way they can go to that next level is just to totally yeah just destroy themselves you know <laughs> yeah just, just a carnal frenzy so you know maybe, maybe it's not all bad i guess once you hit that point i don't know <laughs> might as well go all in you know like <laughs> actually and, and speaking of that scene too in the in the beginning when they're exploring the ship in zero g in their mag boots and okay and also we haven't even touched on this but the fact that the vent horizon is orbiting the planet where it's basically just a nonstop lightning storm going on. So there's just thunder coming, or sorry, lightning coming through the windows. Mm -hmm. What a nice touch. And they use that lightning to highlight those two windows when, when uh, Fishburne's walking through that, that one room and you can just see just gore splattered up against the windows. And it just looks just yes. like thick pudding of just awful, like human awful, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> what a way to set the tone. No, that's that's a good point, and I mean, and I think that that uh that video sequence once they, I think what makes it work so much is that you don't, I mean, you've hit on it. You're not really sure what you're watching, um, and I I think the first time I watched it, I DVR'd it off of like uh some movie channel, like uh, an HBO or a Stars channel or something, and because the DVR the playback is not perfect, like I kept trying to pause it to see what I was looking at. But it would the remote wouldn't react in the right time, and then like there was kind of motion blur. So like I still you have no clear picture of what is happening. Yeah, and that kind of makes it more effective because it's the thing like are they eating each other? Are they having sex, or are they both? Yeah. I, either way, none of those pictures are 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 going to be a pleasant one. <laughs> yeah. So and here's the thing: like as a viewer, we're watching this and we're like, oh man, that's crazy. These guys are watching like some crazy footage. Now, like if if you can really take 
you know, take a step inside the mind of these characters, put yourself in their shoes and you're watching this and you're like, oh my God, I'm on this ship. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what happened to the last group of people here. (laughs) And our fucking escape vehicle is like just destroyed. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Like that, that's, that's a pretty helpless feeling. And and I I love that. Like, I I don't know some movies, some, in some movies I can really put myself in, in the characters situations and other ones, not as much, but but in this one, yeah, I, I, if you really, if you really put yourself in that in that position, man, like you'd just be on the, you'd be on the razor's edge of just going crazy, just knowing you might just be trapped, even if your ship just didn't work, like you would be trapped out there, you know? Yeah. That's a that's a rough spot to be. Uh, yeah, but it, it, it's such a a momentum shift too, because the movie was kind of like slowly building up, and then all of a sudden that sequence, it just like it hits the gas, and then all of a sudden it's like just pulls back, and you're like, what? I'm sorry. What what just happened here? Um, and, and it's and I, I want to pose this question to you, BJ, because I know James and I have have talked about this a little bit. Where so this movie is like it's pretty efficient. I think it's what like an hour and a half, maybe a little bit yep. hour forty, maybe. Um, and but at one point there was a I think a two hour and ten minute cut of this movie mm. that a lot of what was removed was gore and practical right. effects and that kind of a thing. And so I I, I wonder. In your opinion, like if, because Paul W. Sanderson has also said that he he finally in like 2012 saw a copy of that original one, but th- the quality was so deteriorated, there's no yeah. there's no chance to ever see that. Um, but like if we had seen a version of that where there was more of that built in, do you think that it would have even added anything to the movie? Because like it would have been cool, but I don't know if it would have necessarily done much for the story. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think like 15 year old me would have been like, hell yeah, just throw it all in there. You know, I want to see the other wrist get chomped now. Like, uh, <laughs> but uh, but I honestly, I feel like um, the more that is left to the imagination is is cool. Like, uh, you know, so that again, when when as a viewer, you're putting yourself in there in their in these characters shoes, um, you know, more of more of the unknown, I think it, is more of a strong, you know, component of this film. Now, if they had it, if they go, hey, you know what? We actually were able to remaster this. I would, I would check it out for sure. However, I do think the movie is pretty strong the way it is structured, and um, the other one might be a little bit more indulgent, but it could also be really fun. Like it would just be more, more, you know, more gore. I, I'm very curious though what all these additional elements would be. You know, depending on because you said it was quite a bit longer, right? Yeah, I think the, I think, um, I is think it like the other crew. Like we just see more of that crew. And also, the it's, a lot of it, I think, is the nightmare sequences of each uh, of each character getting right. tortured, and how do you just see a glimpse? I yeah. think they were like almost like three or four minutes each, like of just seeing them getting tortured and torn apart. And I kind of agree too. Like <clears throat> young me would have been like, "Give me all of that," but <laughs> I, I I'm of the the basis of you know if the filmmaker wants to show that, awesome. Mm-hmm. But also have the original version too, so you can compare and contrast. Like I love when, like you know, Arrow will put out an edition of a film with like three or four different versions, so you can choose which one you pick, mm-hmm. as opposed to like what Walter Hill did with the Warriors and put out his director's cut with the comic book panels, and it's so freaking jarring. And I'm like, why is the other one out of print now? Like why would you do that? Like why is yeah. the original version? You know what I mean? It's kind of like the whole Star Wars thing where. Yeah, it's up to the filmmaker, but at the same time, leave the original version so you can kind of compare and contrast. But it's like almost, I'm kind of glad. Maybe, but knowing Paul W.S. Anderson, I think he's happy with this cut 
from his commentary track, you know, he's like ecstatic talking about it. Like he he's proud of this film. So like even him, like he probably was like, eh, if I could put it out, cool. But if not, it's not the end of the world because of that. And and I think that actually what makes it more Lovecraftian than if it was just nonstop gore. I agree. You know, what I mean? you know it's yeah, the absolutely. like you said, the the like what is beyond that? What what are we seeing? Like we just saw a glimpse, and like now my brain works. Oh my god! Like that 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 barbed wire is probably tearing his skin off, and you start to <laughs> imagine. You know what I mean? You start to imagine mm-hmm. all this yeah. horrible stuff, yeah, and you're like, yeah. and it's worse than what you actually see. But what you see is pretty bad. What you see is like, <laughs> oh my god, that is horrific. But yeah, I think the older I've gotten too, like the more I actually appreciate less is more. It's more, you know left to our imagination that's better to me yeah and to be fair it's not like they don't show you anything like we're you're still right. you're, the glimpses that you get are, are pretty nice touches i think right like um i mean we haven't even talked about dr peter's cartwheeling down a tunnel like with all of her limbs getting broken backwards you know like, oh god yeah god. you know it's funny that's the one that's one of the main scenes that i i remember having watched where i was like holy like her whole body broke you know it's mm-hmm. just crazy or or so, even or even DJ kind of like strung out from whoa. the ceiling like ripped Just open. Devastated. Yeah, mm. yeah. Oh, which which had real strong Silent Hill vibes to me. I, I guess both the video game and the film. But I, I loved the video games when I was younger, and so that's like that's very much like once you hear the air raid siren and like you're an alternate Silent Hill, like you would see that hanging from probably multiple ceilings. Um, yeah, I, I think. Yeah, you're right, because as James and I have joked, this idea of like a lot of directors kind of being like, let's throw a tentacle in there, and it becomes Lovecraftian. I, I think, yeah, if you take it too far, it's like, let's just throw some more barbed wire in there. It's like, no, let's let's keep it sparse and keep it kind of like this madness, because having you know having the tendencies of Lovecraftian narrators to kind of be like, try and describe, but like, I can't really describe what I saw to you. I mean, at the same time, we can't really describe what they saw either i mean we we got we caught a glimpse of it but if you try to explain to someone like yeah it's it's like there's like an orgy but i I mean maybe they're also having sex but then there's like a wrist being shoved down some guy's throat people like what the hell are you talking talking about about? (laughs) (laughs) well and what i think is cool because we only hear the audio first yeah and 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 that's kind of what's even more makes your brain work and then when you do see little glimpses you're like okay that's even worse than i even thought like i thought it was maybe just killing but it's like no there's there's something more going on there, and these people are just beyond. I think that's a clever way to present it. Like, when we do finally see it, I think it's smart to just cut away and, like, show the reactions of the, the crew going, like, what what the hell are we... Like, like BJ said, what the hell did we get ourselves into? Like, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're fucked. We're, we're, we're going to die. <laughs> yeah. there's, no, there's no escape. Like, how are we going to get away from this this thing? This thing is beyond what human minds can even think of. Yeah, and you know it's funny because as as intensely overt as the, that video and that audio sequence is, they actually do a really nice kind of subtle way of using it as like a narrative plot point where they're they're sprinkling breadcrumbs down. Like you said, they find the audio, and then DJ actually misinterprets it at first, and then he goes, right. "Hey, you know what? It wasn't them being like, oh God, we're in trouble. It's never come here." And they go, "What? Well, but we're already here, you know." And then after that, they go, "Oh, and by the way, uh, I, I managed to crack the code. Come on, let's all gather around and watch the video, you know." So it just gets worse and worse and worse for these characters. And I, I'm I'm of the mindset of I don't know why I think this, but you know, when they first listen to the audio, and then DJ is like, "Wait, that's Latin. Let me listen to it." Mm. I almost think it would be funnier and more fucked up if 
the audio is actually altered by the force and makes them think, oh, it's help us, please. We need rescuing. And then when he finally listens to it again, it's like, oh, wait, that's not what I heard. Like, it's almost like playing with his mind. Like, that, like the, the, this evil force knew that DJ is the only one that knows Latin. And it's like, to me, that permeates even worse. Like, oh, this thing is just dragging them. Like, you're coming, like, with this, you know, like tractor beam. Like, you're coming yeah, to me, right. and I'm going to take all of your souls. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you, you were screwed from the, from the moment that, doc, you know, Dr. Um, um, Weir gets on this ship, they're screwed because now all these pieces are coming into play, and the event horizon is like their end game, and it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. I, it's it is really nice, uh, you know, to consider, you know, the means with which this ship can affect the different crew members. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think is really cool too, um, is that uh, Sean Pertwee's character, the pilot, who's basically outside of the ship the whole time. <laughs> yeah. He actually doesn't experience any any one super you know um, supernatural type phenomenon because he's just out of the ship. And <laughs> I really wonder, like. If it's a matter of like how much range does the ship have? Is it contained within the ship, or did it just not feel that you know he was going to be a necessary component to getting the job done because it already had Weir under its under its control, right? Yeah. So, but I, I found that really interesting because I mean you know like you have the body of the ship with with their rescue vessel basically you know umbilical corded on onto it, and and he's outside of it the whole time and and he's the one guy that's like we're getting out of here I'm I'm fixing the ship we're getting the hell out of here. <laughs> And and he actually doesn't really face any uh, any blowback until he gets blown right the fuck up. So uh, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. There there is also a potential there for some type of um, joke that I think would actually land well in the sense of like if he's outside the ship the whole time and then at one point he kind of comes in and just sees blood and body <laughs> parts ever like what the fuck has been going on in here? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, he is. I, he comes in, I think, to watch that video, and they're like, "We're leaving." And they, basically, him and the other, uh, uh, him and Peters, they're like pulling, you know, oxygen scrubbers. And he's like, "You can just see him revved up. He's in sixth gear. He's like, <laughs> empty, 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 good, empty." Like he wants to go off that ship so bad, and you can feel it that he actually leaves Peters behind. He actually doesn't even realize that she gets distracted. Like he's so right. horse blind on getting off the ship. It's it's awesome. His character was really well. I mean, for you know. He's got a bit of a smaller part, but the way that they executed his character, I feel, was very well done. Now, well, that's how good of an actor he is, too. That he would. I, I also just really bit, Sean Pertwee too. So yeah, no, Sean Pertwee's great. Like, it's funny that like the beginning of the film like reminds me of Doctor Who, and his dad was a doctor in Doctor Who back in the day. Like you know, John right. Pertwee was who was a fantastic actor, but yeah, he's good in everything. I love him in like you know Dog Soldiers and you yeah, know, yeah. But, mm -hmm. and and hell, he gets. He, doesn't he get eaten by cannibals in uh, Doomsday? I think he yeah. does. He's the one that gets roasted alive. <laughs> a thing with cannibals with him. I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do want to talk a little bit about flaws, faults, some of the things that, that make it fall flat a little bit or, or that make it kind of imperfect. And I guess, BJ, for you, what, what are some of the things where it's just like, mm, you know, you had me up until, nah, and then you kind of lost me, or anything that just like... I don't know about that. Uh, one. Okay, well, here's here's a few things. Um, we we kind of already did touch on a little bit with Cooper's character. I feel like if they had grounded him a little more, like it really does kind of take it from like, ah, uh, geez, I don't know. Like, um, it, it takes it out of a, a bit more of a realistic journey of like, 
I wouldn't say man versus nature per se. Like, you know, that's how I look at Sunshine. Sunshine, just to, sorry, go off on a little tangent, because I really like that movie too, mm. until the third act where uh... it just becomes like this one dude on the ship and you're like, oh man, I, I kind of just wish this ended up being just the mission because it was so good. Mm-hmm. It didn't even need that. Um, but to to jump back onto Event Horizon, I feel like it did a very effective job being really well grounded for that first two acts. And then again, once the ship blows up and, and Cooper's basically giving you like a, a narration of how he's going to like save himself where he's like, <laughs> where do I go? Oh, I'm gonna blow my canister. Well, where's the ship? Like, you know, <laughs> or even when he comes back on the ship and he's like, don't hit me and just collapses. And, and you're right. He becomes so comedic. And, uh, that, uh, I feel like it takes away from a bit of the stakes a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, like, if this guy can still be clinging to that much sanity where he's still making jokes, <laughs> you know, it kind of, it like, takes a little edge off. Um, okay, and then, again, okay, so I talked about Sean Pertwee's character not being quite affected by the event horizon, even though he's really close. And one thing that I've always felt was really weird about this film was, um, you know the scene when uh, Dr. Weir basically gets sucked out the window when he has, like, that, that giant nail gun? First of all, <laughs> really funny that he's like seat belted in and it's just banging and clanging around <laughs> like a baby it's like a baby in a car seat like being thrown down a flight of stairs you know he's so mm-hmm. weird but basically you know at this point we as the viewer watch him get sucked out the window and then he just comes back and he's like yeah the ship wouldn't let me leave and i love that idea but i feel like it because um you know pertwee's character wasn't affected on the outside it makes me just kind of, and again, it's allowed to be sprawling and weird, but like, it makes me wonder like, what are the rules here? Like it goes and saves him, but it doesn't even want to mess with this other completely healthy meat, meat popsicle that he can crawl into, you know? So, so that's just more of like an intrinsic thing for me that I felt was just kind of weird in this, like the rules of this world. And, um, and then I guess for me, the third act, it, it just becomes very like, um, you know, it, it almost becomes like too, too conventional, where it's just like, okay, well, Lawrence Fishburne has to take on Sam Weir, who's or Dr. Weir, who's basically now just become like the human vessel for this entity on the ship. So, I mean, I I guess it's good because it gives it somewhere to go. But I don't know. Part of me always wonders, like, what if they kept it just a little bit more um, uh, sub subtextual, you know, in the way that they had to confront the ship? But uh, I think that would be a lot harder to execute. But um, you know, uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, you know, sacrifices himself, gets sucked in the hole, which is pretty cool because we're already well aware of like what this thing can do and has to offer for you if if you uh, end up making the jump. And, you know, it's again, it's kind of cool that two characters made it out. But um, I'd say those were probably my, my three main complaints is like Cooper's character is just a little bit too cool the whole way through. Um, <laughs> what what are the rules of the ship? Although I find that one's pretty forgivable just because, because of the nature of how weird things can get. Right. But, um, and then again, just like the very, the very physical realm that like the, the conclusion is figured out in, I guess. That makes sense. Um, in, it's interesting because, uh, how, especially how, what you voiced with, uh, the Cooper character, it's like, I, I think intrinsically that's what I felt. But the fact that you put words are like, yeah, his, by being this kind of comedic sidekick, it's almost kind of like, oh, this this doesn't have an effect on this one guy, or it does kind of downplay the seriousness of what's going on, which is a good point. But uh, James, what what about what about you? Before I before I go on my rant, what about you? 
Um, yeah, I have to agree about Cooper. Like, I, I like the character of Cooper, but he belongs yeah, to a different. But he belongs in a different movie. Like, <laughs> like for this kind of like the stakes that are going on, and everyone else is so freaking horrified. He's just like quipping like these really bad one-liners and like, <laughs> like, which you know I understand like from from you know their point of view. It's like okay, well. We're showing how much of a badass he is. I'm like, yeah, you are, but you're also like taken away from the moments of just like this dread and like horror. And it's like, oh, okay, that's kind of like, did I, did I want that? And like, you know, it, it kind of throws me off, like, like nowadays. And then like the third act, I love, I love Sam Neill as a Cenobite, but it's, you know, <laughs> I, I agree with BJ. Like, it almost, it almost like. It, it, to me, it makes the entity easier to destroy, or at least to stop. You know, it's and to like, rationalize too, right? Like well, as our human right. brain, we're just like, okay, that's you know, it's in him now. Right, and it's like, okay, look what well, look what the entity has made him do to himself. But it's like, yeah, but I, I'm not even saying I want to see the entity. Like something like, you know, what we've covered before, Prince of Darkness, where we never see this being. Mm -hmm. We only see the arm coming through, and. That's more horrifying than anything because you're like, what the hell does this thing even look like? If that's just the arm and you're like, wait, what is even what what is on that thing? And like other films like, you know, we, we talked about earlier, less is more. And it's true. If in a case like with a love Lovecraft or Lovecraftian thing, like the less you show, the better. And like while I do love crazy Sam Neill Cenobite, it's like, okay, <laughs> it's it's kind of become like like the, the cheesy norm of a lot of these, like, you know, action. You know what it is? It becomes an action film at that point. It's not, yeah, a, that's, it's not yeah, you know that's, what I mean, right? It's mm -hmm. not a horror film anymore. It, it's like how, you know, I remember as a kid, I would, I would always tell people, Alien is a great horror film. And like a lot of people would be like, what are you talking about? It's a sci-fi film. I'm like, yeah, it is, but it's a horror film. It's a haunted house film. That's what it is. It's a haunted house film. Then when you get the aliens, that's a straight up action film. Mm -hmm. And it works both ways, both of them. The problem with the alien films is that they've really only become action films afterward. Like Alien 3 is like to me the, the outlier because David Fincher is trying to make a very psychological film, which is why it didn't do well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, every time they try to make another alien film, like they just throw in these action sequences. It's like, no, I mean the first one works because it's like the like the only thing you could do is just try to kill this one thing that's been killing everybody. You know, Sigourney Weaver, you know, just is badass by the end, but then she became the action star. So like then all of a sudden Lawrence Fishburne has to become like, you know, badass, you know, like numero uno. <laughs> and like then you also have Cooper, who's also another badass guy. So it's <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like, which is cool, but that's another thing that, like, that third act is kind of, like, a little wonky. I, but I do kind of to go with the third act, but I do love the fact with the the ending of the film is, like, did they destroy it? Because then you have the the glimpse from Lieutenant Stark, who we didn't even mention. That's Jolie Richardson, who went on to play the wife in Color Out of Space, which is just funny seeing her so super young. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? It's like, she, she can't escape Lovecraft or Lovecraftian stuff either. <laughs> um, but what else did... I mean, you know, like, like I'm very positive about this film. There's not a lot I don't like. I mean, you know, it's, it's some sequences that are just... You just kind of want them to go to the next, like, okay, keep going. Like, you know, it's okay. Like, let's... Like, I like world building, but sometimes this film kind of meanders a little bit for its shorter runtime. Mm -hmm. But when it does, 
you know, stick the landing. It's it to me, it's sticking it well. You know, and I like to go back. The the thing about the jump scares, I do appreciate that it wasn't the typical jump scares that we see in every film. It's like you know, you think it's gonna be this jump scare, but no, we're gonna throw you this one instead. Like like it almost feels like Anderson, if he had like a cat on board, he would have like threw a cat scare in there somewhere, <laughs> you know. But I mean, it's not much I don't dislike. It's it's just. Do I love it as much as I did before? No, but I still dig it. I still think it's a fun ride. And like, you know, I've, I've watched it many times since, you know, like, and like this past week I watched it four times just to kind of nice. get, you know, three, three times and once with the commentary. The commentary by the end, I, I kind of passed out, but that's because <laughs> of, of work. But, um, or, or maybe the subtle tones of Paul W.S. Anderson, because I, I forgot, like, yeah, his voice is very nice. It's very, oh. very nice British voice, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. Oh, uh, if, if, uh, there is one other thing, too, actually, that I, I didn't much care for, um, at times. I feel like the score was good, but the mm -hmm. sound engineering, I feel like, was, was very ham fisted, and, um, it kind of undoes some of the subtlety of some of the earlier scenes. Um, Here's here's one really weird thing. Early on in the film, there's like a bottle like that swoops past frame. Yeah, and you can hear like the liquid inside sloshing, but everything is like frozen solid, so <laughs> cold in there that like a body explodes when it hits the ground. Right. <laughs> so that must be like the purest vodka that just like has the <laughs> lowest freezing point. <laughs> but but even like when um uh, Jack Noseworthy's guy, uh, oh, Baby Bear, I can't think of his name at the moment, but when he's like moving all that coolant and everything's just like. <laughs> Like everything is just so thick, and at the end too. Like um, I feel like it really ramps in that third act, where even when uh, Lawrence Fishburne is just blasting with that one scrub, where he's like, "You will not take my." It just sounds like, like they just took that sound effect and they went bank, 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 and it just, it, you know, it's, it's the same. Like uh, if I recall correctly, because there's like some punches thrown, and the punches sound like so kind of cheap. Like this, the it same. It literally like sounds like. <laughs> Like, you know, and it's just it's weird um, yeah. it, it almost like feels too elevated you know um, yeah. so that was one thing that yeah I didn't quite jive with as much but again that's relatively forgivable that's just me being nitpicky since we're talking about the things that it didn't work with but. when they and this may be because I, I watched it a while ago so I may have forgotten but when they turn the gravity back on and that like especially in the chamber where the device is all that like black brownish liquid that's been floating around in globs kind of falls. Do they explain like what that liquid is and what it's supposed to do? Or is it just kind uh, of like, eh? They called it coolant. So I, I guess it would be something to do with like keeping everything stable in there. Cause okay. I, I imagine when you open the gravity drive, it gets real hot, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but, but yeah, they don't, they don't really offer up much in the way of what it's, what its purpose is. Okay. And that was not a, that was not me to like, okay, cause here's my criticism. Like that was just like, oh, what is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, was I looking down at my phone at that point or something? I don't know. Maybe possible. But, um, I, so for me, I, I want to start with one little minor nitpick, which is more funny than anything, but the, um, near the end, uh, showdown between Weir and, uh, and, um, Lawrence Fishburne's character, Captain Miller, when Dr. Weir is kind of sitting in that chair and he like, he goes to like hit something on the screen. Like, how do you know where you're reaching? Your eyes are sewn shut. Like, I don't know how you see anything right now, but, that, but that's, that's not, I just remember thinking that like, how does he know? It's fine. I and suppose. that's again, I think that comes down to the rules of this, of this universe that we're living in. Right. Like is the ship, you know, like, you know, it is basically, does he have, you know, event horizon vision where it's just like, again, <laughs> yeah. he's just executing, you know, the, uh, the desires of the ship at that point. Cause that's kind of the sense I got there when he hits the button, mm -hmm. it's not even weird 
because when he snaps out of it, and he's like, help me. And he's like stuck to the chair. Yeah. Um, at that point, I feel like it's just he's a marionette doing doing what the ship wants. No, that's that, that's good. Maybe he he sees the world like uh, Neo sees uh, the world in, in that third Matrix movie, I suppose. Um, yeah. I I similar. Uh, my my first big complaint is similar to as we've already hit upon that, that third act. Not just as it kind of devolve into sort of kind of a a cheaper action sequence, but it's also with some of the shot selection that he that he uses especially i'm thinking kind of like some slow motion stuff it, it would it would it would make me think that paul Douglas anderson thinks that the third act is a lot more exciting than it actually is or that we're a lot more kind of like um worried about the the stakes and even that even that showdown between weir when he's in the chair and captain miller it just it's cut together in such a weird way where it it doesn't seem like he was still trying to figure out how to put a, a coherent action sequence together, which, you know, then, which is funny because I know he made Mortal Kombat, which I can't comment on. It's been such a long time since I've seen that I don't really remember much about it other than I remember being really excited about it and being a little bit re- let down by the reptile thing. Maybe that was just the bad scene. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, from my, my perspective from, like, the stunt side of things is I feel like Mortal Kombat, for, for being a fun film, is, is very pragmatic, actually, in how they execute their action sequences. It's very, like, cut to this shot, boom, boom, like, you know, um, and you can kind of see a little bit of that in Event Horizon, too, just like you were saying. Like, uh, even in just the way it's edited, there's not... It's funny, because, like, you're right. Like, for as amped up as those sequences are, there's not a lot of gloss on them. It's just it's just kind of coverage. So... <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's actually really interesting that you you touched on that. Um, but I, I guess my biggest complaint, and it may seem kind of minor, except it, it it kind of saturates the entire movie. I I don't care about anyone, and I know that that may sound subjective. But what I what I mean by that is, as we've talked about, the film sets it up as though Doctor Weir is going to be our protagonist, and we, and then the film kind of reverses that, where it's like, no, 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 actually he he devolves and he becomes kind of the villain. So then it's like, okay. So who am I following or who am I rooting for? And I think every other character, and this is maybe one of the the downsides of so much footage that was kind of cut or left out, is no one else is developed enough where I I I care or I'm I'm invested in someone. I mean, there is that scene where Miller is talking about, you know, he's explaining who who the person is that he's seeing in his vision, that one person mm-hmm. that he left behind. So like I, I get it kind of, I guess, wants us to get involved in him, but it comes so late that it's like, okay, you're still one-dimensional and you still are that dimension at the end of the film as you were at the beginning of the film. So there's not really anything that needs to be redeemed or discovered from him. So it's kind of like at the end, I'm thinking, who, whose success am I rooted in now at this point? Like, certainly I don't want everyone to die because I'm, I'm not a sadist, but I'm also, you know, um, I was reminded, James, um, a little bit of... Um, the void, which we really, really liked for the most part, but the, at least in the in the real world, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling something for the void if you haven't seen it. Um, the people that kind of survive this this horrific night and uh, this assault on this hospital in the void are two people that we haven't spent a whole lot of time with, so we don't know much about them. So it's like, why are these two people the ones that you decided should be the ones that survive until the end? And I kind of have that feeling, not even kind of, I have that feeling with this one too where mm. it's not just I haven't spent enough time with any of these characters to kind of be like, fuck yeah, Captain Miller, or DJ, or, well, not DJ, because he dies, but... Um, <laughs> and I'm also thinking, when it comes to Sunshine, which I, co- I totally get your, your criticism of that third act, 
it works for me, but I also like, yeah, but I get how people could not care for that. There's also something where there's a larger thing at stake where, like, if they fail this, the sun will die. And so there, there's more at stake than just what's happening on the ship. Whereas in Event Horizon, we pretty much only, like, have what's going on in the ship. What happens if they all die? Well, then they're just all dead and the, that ship is just floating in space. And you can get away with that if you've done the work on the characters. And I don't think the movie does the work on the characters. So it's also like, so what if they all die? Nothing really happens. Yeah. And, and so for for me, that, that kind of makes the journey... I don't want to say it doesn't make it worth it, but it's sort of like, okay, well, this is... There's some cool little visceral effects and, and there's some cool little moments, but for the most part, it's like, eh, all right, moving on to the next one. Yeah, I, I you know what? Honestly, I think that's a, I think that's fair um, because they do such a good job establishing Weir. And like I said, uh, I wasn't quite sure who he would be or what his how his story would play out. But one thing about Miller that you touched on that um, I tend to agree is is his character is so stoic. <laughs> Like good, bad, or otherwise, he's always just kind of got that cool voice, being like, "Get me through this," on like on the comms, you know. And you're like, "All right, well," <laughs> you know. Um, but they did do one nice thing. You're right, by the way. Um, they did bring in like his element of being like, "Yeah, I let one guy die, and I vowed I would never let that happen again." Well, then you probably shouldn't be in the Vent Horizon film. But, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, you know what? I think that they did a nice job circling back to that in that scene with uh dr weir when he blows out the hatch and everyone's getting sucked out and he goes back to save stark with the doors closing because it's like okay he couldn't save his crew but again given the circumstances i think that's forgivable but when given the choice he 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 it wasn't even a question he went back and he he had to he had to you know he was he was willing to die to save stark which i thought was a really nice touch Mm -hmm. um but you're right. I think a lot of the characters were relatively one-dimensional. Um, like uh, with Peters and her kid, that's all I know about her, right? She's got a kid that's sick, and she wants to see her kid, and that is it. Mm-hmm. However, they were also like, I don't know, their their chemistry as, a, as an ensemble was really good, and that, in a way, made me care for them. Um, there was really not one character I disliked. Even, even Weir, up until he really made that hard turn, I was like, well, he, he's a bit standoffish. And again, when he could probably just like, use interpersonal skills to like be like well maybe the gravity drive did this but i don't actually think that happened because you know it it makes his character very interesting because he's in opposition with them from the get-go in in a subtle way um from the from the beginning Mm -hmm. um but i i would tend to agree i mean you know if if you look at aliens i mean i I, i'll name you all those characters and why i man i wish they were all alive still that's weird when you want all the characters to live by the end of the film you know yeah i I, man when when I when I watched Aliens for the first time and and uh, Vasquez and Gorman get taken out like that that was that was the one where, like I was so sure Vasquez was gonna make it to the end and no that movie is goddamn amazing but uh, sorry and and I know we touched on Sunshine again um, I guarantee you that that third act like that whole there's someone else on the ship it all comes down to that one scene when they're trying to math out the oxygen on the ship and they're like okay so how much oxygen do we have um, before we get to this point mm-hmm. and, it, and it keeps giving them the wrong number because they think that there's only three people on board and it's the reveal when the ship says, no, there's four people and they go, what? Like, <laughs> you know, and then, the, Oh the, yeah, that guy came off the other ship and he's like prowling around somewhere like that. I was pretty amazing. I really did enjoy that, that aspect. But, um, yeah, but again, personally, I just, I would really love it if, if it, it really was just man versus nature, which is weird because I'm such, you know, I'm such a fan of, 
of like sci-fi action, horror, gore, and all that stuff. And it went that way, and it turns out I wasn't into it as much. But <laughs> I still really like that movie a, a lot. I think Danny Boyle is like one of the best directors out there. So, well, and by the way, you guys are a big fan of The Void, right? Yeah. Both of you? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's weird. Like, um, I, I really wanted to love it, and I wasn't as big on The Void. However, I will say, like, do you see do you see a bit of a common thread in the endings of both of these films? Like, with Miller confronting Weir and hitting the button and then them going into the, you know, into the black hole. And then in the void, it's the same thing with the big preachy doctor doing the same thing. And then they both get tackled through the, the portal. And then they, it's, it, to me, it's like kind of the same ending. Well, it, it almost feels like they took it from Prince of Darkness and this with the going through to the, to the void, the other side. And then like, and then you're like, okay, we've just, we've, we've defeated it. Yes. But it's not really good. Because we're still screwed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I, I was even, and I think having this conversation one one of one of the good things that's come out of the conversation is I've I've come around because I was thinking when I was watching this the last time like I don't know if I would consider this film to be a Lovecraftian film like I don't know if for me if it would fit the criteria but talking a bit through it and even even the the parallels you draw to the void which like yes very clearly is like. Uh, okay, yeah, no, I guess it, I guess it kind of is. I, I my, my hesitation or or uh, wanting to push back just comes from there is so much a, a a an emphasis on this of a visceral physical reaction, which is Lovecraft more went for the emotional and the mental thing, which I think is as I already kind of discussed something which might have been lost in uh, to a certain degree a lot of the cuts made. But this this is this movie is so kind of. Um, concerned with not concerned with but like there is a lot of stuff where it's like you are your skin is crawling and you're kind of like this is an uncomfortable physical feeling because of what these people are going through which is a a trope that uh, adapting a lot of lovecraft stuff i think directors go more too much towards the physical stuff and like the the grossness and the viscera to kind of make you feel something because existential dread is hard to capture visually um and uh, as as I said with my one with my one kind of complaint about this kind of being such an insular story, like that existentialism is kind of lost for me. Um, and, and I I know that the video game Dead Space has a lot to owe to this movie because of that. It's a, a very similar thing. But um, yeah, I mean, but I also don't want to be the the guy that every time someone says it was something of crafting, I kind of push up my glasses like, well, actually. But you know, if, if you if you get that out of it, then it's like, who am I to say like, no, you're wrong. Okay, well, let me ask you guys this then. Um, it's a it's a subjective question, and uh, talking about uh, maybe going less towards the the visceral and the physical ending, which ultimately is what the Event Horizon becomes at the end. Um, and I wonder how much of that was the studio being like, no, we like you know, f- to connect with a larger audience, we can't end it on this. Uh, you know, we can't be so mind bendery with it. So let me let me ask you if they if maybe they went a different route and and it it was like a little bit more of uh, to to harken back to Prince of Darkness with the mirror. Like let's say it's let's say it's Miller like staring into the grav drive with like you know Weir's hand coming for his face and he thought he saved the day, but it, you know maybe that's the ending. Does it hit and does it become a cult classic like James was saying? with an ending like that, or does it just not quite connect to as much of an audience to be even have us talking about it tw- uh, 20 years later? I think it works better th- if that is the case, because then I think if nobody escaped, 
and this is like and it was just the illusion of escaping that i i think it 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 does one of two things one it is a logical conclusion to parallel the journey of Weir from like rational into his de-evolution to the villain. Like then it, it sort of makes sense that everyone, that nobody would escape that because of this is our voice of rationality and reason and that loss, then how could anyone else escape that? Um, and then also what I think it does is um, indicates that, this idea that is a thing in love, like in Lovecrafting, like there was an inescapable fate. Like as soon as the people got on the ship, it was decided. Like it was done. Like there was no escaping from it. Um, and, and then, and then I think it also addresses my complaint of like, why are these the two randos that end up surviving everything at the end? Like, well, because they're not. Because nobody has escaped. And I know James really loves a downer ending. Oh, always. I feel like a downer ending always leaves you thinking more about it than a happy ending, which, you know, sometimes I might not even like it, but it resonates more with me and it, I find it to be more powerful. So I tend to skew darker ending myself. So. Well, I think, I think a darker ending is like against what Hollywood wants to. Totally. Yeah. I agree. So I agree with you where it's like, we're the, we're some of the, the higher ups saying, Hey, uh, you need to do this or you need to, show you need to yeah. have him become this you need so it kind of like dilutes the product i mean i i mean i'll be honest i've never read the the original screenplay so like i wonder how much was changed altered or whatever but yeah it's it's it, that's the problem when you know especially when paramount or whoever is giving you 60 100 million dollars sadly the director has to go sometimes okay um i guess i'm gonna have to do that because if i don't I get fired, and they're going to do it anyway. So I might as well put enough of my blood <laughs> yeah. into the DNA of it, you know? Yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. Yeah. Okay, here, here's here's the offer we'll make to the film gods. Then I will <laughs> I will give up the the uh, the never before seen extra gore forty minutes, and I will watch the alternate ending where we do we do the dark <laughs> of darkness ending. Yep. I would trade for that for sure, and I would yeah. I would love to see that because personally I think that would be a really fun way to do it. But ah, uh, you're you're totally right, James. Like the darker ending. It's just sometimes it's too hard on some of the viewers and like, but that's the one that leaves you sitting in the theater being like, God damn, Jim, like you were saying, like this whole shit was, was decided the moment they stepped on the ship. Like this was just, just watching the dominoes fall and there was no escape. Mm. And that is just so excruciating, you know, when, cause like I said, when you try to put yourself in the, the shoes of these characters, knowing that like, there's just, it's, it's just a no win situation is just like, oh man, that just pulls at the soul, you know? Well, and and then I'm I'm uh, <laughs> I'm wondering too about uh, BJ. I think you and I talked about this, but um, uh, and I once again can't remember if it was on mic or off mic. But uh, Return of the Living Dead and that sequence where the zombies are like, send more paramedics, and you, and the <laughs> yes. people keep showing up. And I just kind of think like, if it turns out at the end, like, nope, they're all trapped and this is coming. Like, what's going to happen? Probably another rescue mission at some point. Wait, Probably. you know what they're you know what they reminds me of? It reminds me of Ghost Ship. I wish I had not seen. <laughs> oh, I love. I, I mean, it's not good, but Ghost Ship basically it's something that's luring these people for their souls, and then no matter what they do, this thing is just going to keep doing it over and over and over again because he can't be destroyed. So, I wonder if I could give I'd give a love Lovecraftian slant to that movie. I don't know. I'll have to talk to you about that off mic. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny. <laughs> It's funny you mentioned you more. <laughs> no, James, no. Um, 
I, I remember years ago at, at a, a job that I had in high school and college, uh, talking to a coworker, and, and he was, it was one of the first times that I ever met him and, and was talking to him, and he was trying to tell me that he's like, he's like, yeah, man, I'm a big movie buff. I love watching movies, love all this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, really? Like, he's like, yeah, I saw this great movie. Have you ever heard of it? Ghost Ship. I'm like, okay, I don't know if we're gonna if we're gonna get along very well <laughs> when it comes to movie taste. Um, but that, that's neither here nor there. But no, no, and uh, I mean. Yeah, because if you have that, like, everyone's trapped, this has been fucked from the very beginning, then it's like, who knows, maybe they send another rescue crew. We haven't heard from right. that one. Maybe they send another rescue crew. And just you have this thing of, like, this is just going to keep cycling and keep feeding on these on these souls. Well, I think the fact that, that Cooper and Stark got, got rescued by a rescue team indicates mm. that, yeah, they would just be sending more bodies to figure out what happened to the last crew. We got to figure right. this out. So mm. I think it's a cyclical in nature as well in that in that respect. Um, it's ghost ship in space. <laughs> Which the, oh no, because ghost ship came after, so I guess that couldn't have been the pitch. Um, also, in this new version, I think it'd be uh, hilarious, but also fitting if it was like once they descramble the message and we all watch it. The video that we're watching is just that original transmission from Prince of Darkness with like the VHS outside with that weird shadowy figure. It's equally as creepy that 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 yes. sequence. Oh man, but um, any uh, do we have any any additional or final thoughts on on Paul W S Anderson's Event Horizon? Uh, okay, I got two notes. Right. Um, Philip Eisner, uh, the writer of this film, uh, I looked him up, and and he hasn't done a lot. Um, I quite like Event Horizon. I really don't like Mutant Chronicles. So the guy's batting fifty, <laughs> or, you know, batting five hundred as far as the scriptwriter goes. <laughs> um, and then the other thing too that uh, actually we haven't touched on. And one of the scenes that, that I love, and, and this kind of comes down to the world building and, and does a really good job of, of explaining kind of the world that they live in, is when Dr. Weir explains how the gravity drive bends time and yes. pushes, like, what an iconic scene. Like, I, I probably send that to someone for whatever reason, like, twice a year. I don't know why, but I, I just go <laughs> wormhole scene, event horizon, boom, and it's right there on YouTube. Because it's just, it's a thing that exists in its own little ecosystem now. But... I swear to God, there's another film that like literally just ripped it off. They folded a paper, pushed a pen through, and I, I've been racking my brain, and I can't think of what movie it was. But if you guys ever come across it, let me know, because that has been something for the last year or two that I just can't figure out what it's from. But they straight up ripped it off. I'm going to have to do re- – I know what you're talking about because, I'm. yeah, it was a film afterward that they just directly just went, yeah. oh, you just fold it and you put – I'm like, and I was like going, wait a second – did someone steal something from Event Horizon? Yeah, like, <laughs> but like, but it's a really it's good wrong. thing to steal, though. It's it's a really <laughs> clever thing because like actually, I think even they talk about how Philip Eisner I think wrote that in the script to explain such a crazy concept. Yeah, right. You know, and it's like, and they went, oh, like I think Anderson was saying like he loves that scene so much because it's like, yeah, it, it's like me, I don't understand this thing, but then you show it like that, I go, oh, I understand that now. And that makes a lot of sense. Like, and what a cool concept it is, because if you take point A and point B and you fold it together, it's whatever darkness lies in between those two points that you're getting to where just the worst things are found. And it's like, it's just through that little slice, you know, in, in, in the travel of, of the wormhole that you just find chaos. And it's, uh, uh, like you said, I mean, it's a it's a little two minute sequence of people talking and, and poking a pen through a paper and it's it's awesome it's I love it. 
Oh yeah, the the, the great also the, that's one of the funniest lines in the movie. Like layman's terms, you know, doc. That, like, speak English? <laughs> Do you speak English? Because yeah. like I don't even know what the hell you're like. That's layman's terms when he's still explaining oh. it like 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 a scientific <laughs> asshole. When you're like, yeah. My, and it's funny because then you see like we're like this gives his look like. Okay, I guess I'm gonna have to dumb it down for the plebeians here. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah totally. It's great. And and then it's funny that his reaction is like you you could almost kind of tell like by being purposely condescending is like well then I'm gonna take one of your girly pictures you fucking idiots and I I agree like how overtly condescending where he's like right? okay guy you like naked girls all right let's <laughs> let's figure this out you know like I mean obviously it's it's smoothed over a little bit but but yeah. it's true he's like okay. Let's explain it for all the apes in the room. It's it's great. <laughs> I it's not uh, the 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 scene you're describing. It wasn't in Interstellar, was it? Oh man, I, I maybe I, actually. I hope it is because that would be so awesome. Because yeah, and it, it's because I, I don't know. Like I'm racking my brain and thinking of like oh. m- movies that that deal with that science fiction movies that deal that don't deal with light speed but try and deal with some other type of interstellar travel. And then I was like, ah, but I I haven't seen Interstellar since it came out. So like. Same. That seems like it'd be that movie, but I also I I can't I can't remember well, fair enough. You might be right, and if uh, if that's the case, then I mean that's you know that's 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 a little bit of shine for Venture Horizon there. If it was <laughs> Interstellar, that was like yeah, we're just gonna borrow this scene for our. <laughs> yeah. <you know. laughs> that that uh, Christopher Nolan borrows from Paul W S Anderson. What a yeah. world! What a oh world! God, we live what in. world is this? <laughs> we're on the Venture Horizon. So. <laughs> um. My my only final thoughts, and I've, we've already kind of talked about this all, is like, yeah, I, I did not dislike this movie as much as I thought I would. It's it's certainly not perfect. I will say it's probably, I will give it that I it's it's Paul W S Anderson's best movie. Um, but I think that that says less about the movie and more about Paul W S Anderson as a as a director. Um, may, maybe one day, or maybe even hell off, Mike you two will have to explain why you love Mortal Kombat so much, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, James, any, any final thoughts on, on Event Horizon? Um, not much of a final thought. Uh, just, I like, you know, I like the film still. Um, you know, I knew, I knew going out, I was still going to like it. And, you know, it was one of those things where it still didn't disappoint. And by the way, it is interstellar. Uh, <sighs> Look up the wormhole explanation scene. Oh shit! I'm looking. I'm like, because once you said it, I'm like, yeah, I remember that in like a big bunch of them going, what the hell? Like, really? It's it's yeah. When when he's being explained to Matthew McConaughey or whatever, he's just talking about. Yeah, I'm gonna have to watch that scene then just wow. to see exactly. But isn't that yeah? Isn't that a small world? You know. All right. Well, that's that's a pat on the back for Phil Eisner there. Yeah. So. <laughs> wow. That's that is amazing. Uh well we yeah, we do live in a world where Christopher Nolan has borrowed from Paul Davis <laughs> Anderson, so Yes. Yeah. Uh, um and again, thanks for having me on guys. Um and, and uh thanks for letting me I, I kind of I kinda of went off on a few tangents there, whether it was like the void or sunshine. But you know, I, I feel like it's really fun to to you know, look at films that are kind of I wouldn't say like-minded, but kind of, you know, share certain sensibilities with, you know, the film that we were talking about in this case of Horizon. And, uh, I don't know. It was really fun. Cause again, I, I, I listened to the, to the podcast and I, I heard you guys talking about the void and this and that. So it's weird. I always have these little things and I was able to squeeze in the void there and talk about, and we're talking about Horizon, And that was the one thing I wanted to pitch you guys on is I, I think it's the same ending. It's just, one came yeah. like yep. 15 years earlier. So, um, but again, I, I had a great time and, uh, I, you know, I, I like I like the movie. So you know, we came in and 
I'm, I'm glad. But both your points, I think, were, were valid. I think James and I uh, are big yeah, fans. And I, Jim, I think all your I think all your points are pretty good too. But uh, there's just maybe maybe it was the nostalgia of just watching it at the right time. But yeah. I still feel it holds up. Some of the some of the VFX may be a little bit uh, a little bit aged, you know, in that like it looks a little cellophane as it hits the foreground and stuff. But <laughs> but you know, there was enough practical stuff to really ground it. And yeah, I'm I'm a fan. No, and, and yeah, it's it's not it's certainly not terrible. And you never have to apologize for tangents on this show. Uh, yeah. mo- most of the time when I'm editing the episode, the things that I'm cutting out are the tangents, which would just go on <laughs> a little bit too long and have nothing to do with uh, what we were talking about. But sometimes they are they are uh, kept in as well. But certainly, uh, James and I are no are no strangers uh, to that. But um, yeah, and I, I guess BJ, if uh, if people didn't bother listening to the interview episode with you, but they want to hear about Event Horizon. <laughs> How can uh, how can people find more of your stuff, more of you on the internet? Yeah, uh, I'm easy to find on Twitter and Instagram. It's just my name, BJ Vero. And uh, you can also find me on Facebook at um, my company name, which is Strata Studios. That's me. And uh, you can reach us um, via email at moviesofmadness at gmail.com. James is uh, Fistful of Media on Twitter. I am Nolan Fixes Teeth. Um, you can catch up on uh, back episodes of Cast of Cthulhu pretty much wherever you get podcasts. We are on iTunes, we are on Google Play, we are on Spotify. James, I forgot to mention, we're on Amazon Music now as well. I, I saw that. I was like, oh, wow, Amazon Music too? Yeah, okay. so may, maybe we'll attract another two, three listeners. Who knows? We can only dream. Um, maybe, we'll make two pen- maybe we'll make two pennies from it too or something. You know? <laughs> right. Uh, but Bezos <laughs> will make seven million pennies. It's fine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, so, um, of course, um, next, uh, next time we will be talking about, um, completing the John Carpenter Apocalypse Trilogy with, uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Not sure as of this recording yet who is going to be joining us, or if anyone, we keep trying. I've been making a push to try and get, uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead to, uh, to come on, and by push I mean I keep tagging them in social media posts and hoping that they'll <laughs> respond <laughs> Hasn't worked yet, uh, but I mean, I know they're very busy because uh, Synchronic, the trailer and promotional stuff just kind of came out for, um, which I, I guess before we sign off, have you, you guys taken a look at it, at, at Synchronic stuff? Um, I haven't. I've seen that it's going to be screening at a few things, but um, I haven't checked it out, but uh, I, I like their previous work and um, yeah, actually, I, I think that was the nice, that's the nudge I needed. I'm going to check it out after we wrap up here. Yeah, yeah it looks really good. Like yeah. that's all I'm gonna say. It looks really good. No, it, it looks it looks really good. And even like, and I mean, uh, in in some of the poll quotes that are in there, I mean, Lovecraftian oh. is even in there. Um, so I, I think that I think it's. I'm wondering if they've kind of made a little their own cinematic universe where all four of their features now all kind of exist in the same thing, which isn't to spoil anything as much as just, I mean, wrestling, um, endless, and um, what was the other one? Resolution, resolution, yeah, uh, and spring, yeah. Yeah, So uh, resolution, endless do seem to exist. So it, when you got filmmakers which deal with kind of like time in different dimensions, it's it's probably not too far of a stretch to think like maybe there's something there. But a little bit of a nexus point there, connecting things. Yeah, Yeah. I think so. But I'm so glad that I've I was introduced. Those two guys were because they're they're exciting filmmakers. But um, yeah. So in that's all a roundabout way of saying in the mouth of madness. We are hoping to kind of get a, a guest on there. Um, nothing as of yet, but, uh, do be sure to, ch- to, uh, keep tuned into our, our Twitter feed and our Facebook feed, um, to see if that is, uh, going to change or not. But, um, yeah, BJ, thanks, uh, thanks so much for, Thank for you. joining us again. 
Um, oh, my, this is all mine, guys. I, I had a great time today. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah, be, uh, listeners, be sure to uh, tune in next time. Where we'll be covering In the Mouth of Madness. But in the meantime, we'll be waiting and dreaming with Dead Cthulhu in his house in Relia. <laughs>